Thank you once again for joining me for another episode of the Six Peas Podcast. Great to have your company for another edition, another another episode. And this one is going to focus all on the first section of the dressmaker as part of our comparative unit. We're going to be dropping episodes all this week that uh, summarize the text, look at the characters, provide you with some key quotations, and make a couple of links here and there back to our other text, which of course is the Crucible. Now, if you would like to get in contact, you can do so via email at sixpiecepodcast at gmail.com. That's sixpiecepodcast at gmail.com. Com. It's been great getting some feedback on some of the videos as well that we've had. So check out the YouTube channel. Just search for Six Piece Podcast. Plenty of content up there, particularly surrounding these comparative texts. Now, music theme today is based on the fact that a couple of days ago, it was the shortest day of the year, June 21st in the uh, Southern Hemisphere, of course. So I thought day and night would be our theme today, and we're going to kick things off with a little tune from Jess Day. We'll be right back on the Six Piece Podcast after this. Never gonna get you off my mind, I tried for so long. Everybody tells me time heals all wounds, but my bones are aching from the fall I took for you. When you dropped me, you said I can make you lose your mind. We did it a thousand times. So as I said, uh, today is going to focus really on the first section of the text and just like the crucible, the dressmaker is broken up into four parts and each part uh, is related or named after a type of fabric. In this case, we're dealing with gingham. Now, this section encapsulates the prologue as well as chapters one to nine. So we're going to run through all these together and we're going to start with the prologue, which just provides us over a couple of pages with a description of Dungatar and the house up on the hill where we know that Molly lives. Uh, It's labelled a shaky beacon in a vast black sea and it's also referenced that the hill casts a shadow over the town that stretched as far as the silos. And we know, having read the text later on, that the women, Molly and Tilly, who live up there, look down at the town the whole time. It closes with um, the idea or the event that Tilly is going to return home to Molly. 
before we get to chapter one, which is where the gingham section really starts. So why is it labeled gingham? Well, gingham is a versatile and adaptable material, and uh, I have done my research on this. I'm not uh, the biggest fashionista going around, but it is often used as a place to start when making a dress. So for me, this is all about building up the backstory, um, providing the reader with information about the characters and the town as a place to start for us before we get back or before we go into the nitty-gritty sort of stuff. So chapter one is all about Tilly returning home, where she's reunited with her mother, Mad Molly. Now, she arrives on the bus. What's interesting to note about this is Sergeant Farrett, who's a local policeman, um, is um, intrigued and says, a passenger, which suggests that this is a really isolated place. They don't get many outsiders coming in. Tilly returns home, as I said, she has a knot in the pit of her stomach, and she, well, we get this idea that she's not feeling great about returning home, and the quote that we get to describe her is the fact that she seems strong, but damaged, and that comes up on page seven and suggests that the community of Dungata have done something wrong to her. She, upon seeing her mother, she says, this is what they've done to you, in reference to the town, and she's labelled as Mad Molly. The fact as well that's quite interesting is the fact that she doesn't recognize Tilly. And what is also interesting about this is the fact that this text changes perspectives from time to time. So it's a third-person perspective novel. And while it's predominantly from Tilly's perspective, um, throughout, we do get a change um, in perspective. So Molly comes up a couple of times, as does Sergeant Farrett. Now, Tilly looks out on the town and does notice the McSweeney's. And the McSweeney's, or the father of the McSweeney family, is the night cartman. So he carries, carries or takes out all the sewerage. And she also looks out on the town where she notices that it's not a busy road and there are a few shops there and the fact that there is a community hall in the middle. But chapter one really sets the scene of Tilly returning home. Now, chapter two brings us to or provides us with an idea about what a Saturday morning in Dungata is like and we are introduced to many of the citizens. So we start with the Pratts who own the general store. Their names are Elvin and Muriel and they have a daughter called Gertrude. So Gertrude is described as being quite large and sensible uh, while her parents or her father Elvin is described as courteous but mean and Muriel, her mother, is described as being dull and blank, as well as laconic and unkept. We're also introduced to the Beaumonts, who represent the upper class of this society, mainly Elspeth, who is the mother, and she has heirs, so she thinks she's better than everyone else, and her son, William, who has returned to town. And Gertrude is very much keen on William. When it's proposed to Elspeth that Gertrude would be a good fit for William. Elspeth suggests that no, he would have to look um, far and beyond Dungata to find a suitable companionship. We're also introduced briefly to Mona as well, who is her daughter, and she's often ignored throughout this text. Um, very little is said of her, apart from the fact that there's a good quote later on that calls her poor suffering Mona by name, Mona by nature. That comes up, comes up on page 139 a little bit later on in the text, but the Beaumonts particularly think they're quite well-to-do. What's interesting to note, though, in this little section is the fact that they owe the Pratts a lot of money, and with William returning home, Alvin Pratt is very keen to see William pay for all the expenses his mother um, has 
um, accumulated over the time. After this, everyone in the town notices that there is smoke emanating from the chimney at Mad Molly's, and we have quotations such as, you know, they glared out when they're looking up, and they seem to be quite fearful of this. Bueller Harradine suggests that Myrtle Dunnage has come back, and again, this strikes fear within the town. Also in Chapter 2, we get a bit of Sergeant Farrett's backstory. He's quite a relaxed policeman in this country town. Um, got a nice little link here to the Crucible, where the law is very much the opposite of relaxed. It's quite strict. We're also introduced to the publicans, the people who own the pub, which is Fred, who is a teetotaler, who so he doesn't drink, and Pearl, who very much cares about her physical appearance. We're introduced to Mr. Almanac, who is the local pharmacist. He is looking in at other, or he knows a lot about other people's business, having providing them with their treatments. Um, he actually notices and is looking at photographs, which is what pharmacists used to do. They used to develop photographs. And he sees Faith O'Brien, a woman who's having an affair with Reginald Blood. He calls her a sinner. So again, nice link to the crucible there in terms of being a very conservative society. Great news in the chapter two. The local football team win the match and everyone heads to the pub. And William Beaumont feels at ease with the footballers as opposed to when he's with his mother. And that's where chapter two ends. Chapter three, we go back to Tilly. And it's here that she meets Teddy McSwiney, who lives in a caravan next to the tip. He, of course, is from the poor family. She meets him when she's down at the tip because she's trying to find a wheelchair for her mother, who is obviously very, very sick. It is the beginning of their romance. And after meeting, there's a quote where she says, she thought about Teddy McSwiney and wondered if the rest of the town would be as friendly. Again, we get this idea that she feels a little bit uneasy to be back. To close chapter three, there's a really good quotation from Molly. She says, you can't keep anything secret here. Everybody knows everything about everyone, but no one ever tittle-tattles because then someone else will tell on them. But you don't matter because it's open slather to outcasts. This idea that Tilly and Molly are both outcasts in this community and the fact that they'll never be accepted by people from Dungatar is really important. So too, to an extent, is Teddy um, a bit of an outcast as well in this society. He, of course, represents the lower class. Even though he's a really good football player, and again, he's accepted by the town because he's so good at football, he still sits on the periphery of society. Chapter 4, we see Tilly taking her mother to town. And uh, again, we see further fear and concern from the citizens upon seeing her. This chapter is really good because it encapsulates the town's insular atmosphere and we're introduced to Beulah Harradine, who is the main town gossip and she's one of the main, I would think, antagonists in this text. Beulah is skinny and mean and we also know that, uh, or we also meet Lois Pickett, who is described as being fat and pimply. What's interesting to note is they gossip about Tilly as she walks down and Molly later on reveals some of their secrets, the fact that Lois Pickett scratches her scabs and blackheads. We're also introduced to Nancy Pickett, who is Lois's sister. She's a square-faced woman, that's what she's described as, uh, with a broad shoulders and a boyish gait. We'll find out later on that she is a lesbian and in a romantic relationship with Ruth. We also get a bit of the town's perspective on Molly and Tilly as they watch them. And we've got a great quotation here. It says, Pearl, Fred, 
Elvin, Muriel, Gertrude, Beulah, and Lois, and all the Saturday morning shoppers in Country Folk watch the illegitimate girl push her mad mother, loose woman, and hag across the road onto the park. We can see that the townspeople label Tilly and Molly. The fact that Molly had a child outside of wedlock is looked down upon, and the fact that Tilly, even through no fault of her own, um, is illegitimate, um, is looked down upon by the town. Again, a really conservative community. Just one last thing in this chapter is the fact that we're introduced to Irma Almanac, who is the wife of the town pharmacist. Now, what's interesting to note about her is she, or there's, it's alluded to the fact that she is abused, physically abused by her husband. There's a quote on page 41 that says, she, meaning Irma, used to have a lot of falls, which left her with a black eye or a cut lip. And over the years, as her husband ground to a stiff and shuffling old man, her injuries ceased. And even though he is a pharmacist, he refuses to give her medicine for her arthritis, which is really, really sad. Again, the chapter closes once again with the town looking up, and it says, The people bobbed together like chooks, pecking at the vegetable scraps, turning occasionally to glance up at the house on the hill, before turning hurriedly away to showcase their fear. We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to go to another song. This is Midnight City. On the other side, we're going to go through chapters 5 to 9 in The Dressmaker. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. We're going to move on to Chapter 5 of The Dressmaker, and it begins with Beulah Haradine, who, of course, is a town gossip. She's snooping on Ruth Dim, who is Prudence's sister. Prudence, of course, is the um, school teacher at the school. She's also snooping on Nancy Pickett. Now, they are both lesbians who need to conceal their relationship, obviously being a conservative town. Beulah then goes to complain to Sergeant Farris about an issue with the McSweeney children. It's interesting to note that in this scene, Sergeant Farris is wearing a gingham skirt over his police uniform. And we find out throughout this text that he is a crossdresser, that he does enjoy wearing dresses and skirts. She complains to him and says, what's the point of having a law enforcer if he enforces the law according to himself and not the legal law? And we know that Sergeant Farrett is very lax when it comes to the laws of Dungatar. And this is a nice comparison to the Crucible, as I said before, where there's much more inflexible um, thinking and much more black and white um, beliefs in that town. Sergeant Farrett describes Bula as vicious, malnourished, and mad. And 
it's interesting because Beulah calls Tilly the murderess. So we get a little bit of information about Tilly, the fact that she might have murdered someone. She complains that the McSwiney children assaulted her, and she ends up being quite hysterical about this. Sergeant Farrett doesn't really take her too seriously and doesn't give in to her gossiping and conniving ways. He ends up dropping her a long way from home after um, she forces him to go up and visit the children. Chapter five, chapter six, I should say, uh, is or returns. Well, William returns back to the Pratt store. Now Gertrude is clearly very much interested in him, but he is quickly or she is quickly dismissed by her father. Now we find out again that there is significant money owing on the Beaumonts' behalf to the Pratts, and William is very worried about this. Elvin Pratt, the father, um, is a little bit. Um, baffled by Gertrude and her obsession with William. He says, The idea, a great calico bag of water. He describes her as a great calico bag of water. Not a chance of unloading her to anyone, least of all William Beaumont. And we know that marriage is really important um, in small rural communities, um, especially when it comes to social status and gaining social status. Following this, Tilly has a flashback to her time at school. And it wasn't a great time for her. We find out that the teacher, Miss Dim, who still teaches there, um, very much didn't look into any of the bullying that um, Tilly received. In fact, she turned a blind eye to it and that many of the students abused her at school through violent ways. They called her a bastard and they called her mum a slut. So very much bullying her. Subsequently, we're introduced to the Pettimans. Evan, who is the counsellor, he's described as being someone who is quite lascivious and salacious. There's a quote that says, he was a man who touched women, leaned close to talk, licked his lips, and at dances, pressed his partners tightly, ramming his thigh between their legs to move them around the floor. And the fact that men, or women, sorry, turned their backs when they saw him and men avoided him, but they often were cordial in his company. Now, we're also introduced to Marigold, who is his wife. She's engulfed in, a, in grief, I guess, from her son's death that she, we find out happened 20 years ago. Um, she's quite medicated, or she's heavily medicated as well, provided with uh, medicine from her husband, Evan. And after she passes out in this chapter, Evan ends up physically abusing her while she's passed out. Chapter 7 is all about the grand final because Dungata, the local team, are playing in the grand final. And we know that football is a really important or plays a really important part in bringing the communities together. It's quoted on page 62 that every available man, kid and dog, gathered to watch the grand final training, to listen to the coach's pep talk in the dressing sheds afterwards, and rub oil of wintergreen on the players' thighs and calves. Anyone who's played footy would know um, that imagery um, is really pertinent, um, especially the, 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 the smells, I think. Now, the town are once again gossiping about Tilly the night before the grand final, which is really interesting. She's again labelled Mad Molly's bastard girl, and they suggest that she whether she's inherited any of her mother's loose ways, again looking down on Molly for having an illegitimate child. Good news, the Dungatar team win the grand final, largely due to Teddy's performance. And again, we know that Teddy is highly valued in the community purely based on his footballing abilities. 
Celebrations continue at the pub, which included the entire town, then at the station hotel. And we get a great quote to describe the hysteria. On page 67, it says, The rabble were in various stages of undress and inebriation, embracing indiscriminately, singing, dancing onto the footpath, or swinging down from the balcony on the unfurled fire hydrant hose. I'm getting a nice connection there to the girls dancing um, in the crucible. What's interesting to note, though, this behavior isn't really looked down upon, while other behavior is. They're quite contradictory. The aftermath of the celebrations is quite interesting. Um, it says that blittery people were strewn about the footpath in pockets and piles. Bushes shimmered to the sound of frottage. Men were being led home by hand. And Scotty Pullet sat upright at the bar asleep. Pearl stretched alongside him also asleep. And Fred sat next to them sipping a hot cup of Horlicks. Bueller Harridan again is observing all this behavior. But again, we get this idea of a community and that is why we celebration following the grand final. All right, we've got two more chapters to go in this first part. Chapter 8 begins with a discussion about trains between Hamish and Ruth as mail arrives for Tilly. We get this idea of a community again that is quite rigid in its views. They talk about diesel trains and the fact that um, damn progress. They, they sort of, or Hamish particularly, is really upset about progress. There's naught that's poetic about diesel or electric. Who needs speed? They are a community that is stuck in the past. Now, Ruth, who organizes the mail, ends up going through a package which was for Tilly with her, and I quote, her long nose. She's a real sticky beak. And she notices there's lots of um, unusual things in Tilly's package, including things like soil and um, even books that she's never heard of, including one. Um, from Ernest Hemingway. Now, over dinner, Teddy invites Tilly to the footballer's dance, but she doesn't agree to go to it. Tilly ends up collecting her package from the post office and runs into May McSwiney, who is Teddy's mother. Tilly thanks her for looking out for Molly while she was away, and May would run up food for Molly, as would Irma Almanac as well. May makes a really interesting point. She says nothing ever really changes Myrtle. Myrtle is, of course, Tilly's original name. She's now changed it to Tilly, which suggests that some things will never change. Tilly later visits Irma to give her marijuana-laced cakes to help with her pain, and Irma and Molly chat together. It's interesting that Tilly observes that Irma and Molly chatted carefully, avoiding the tender topics they shared, absent babies and brutal men. They talked instead about the rabbit plague, the proposed vaccination for whooping cough, communism, and the need to drain kidney beans before and after boiling and before they go into soup because of possible poisoning. So they avoid those events that sort of draw them together for this really nice friendship. But again, it provides us with some context information here when they talk about things like um, the rabbit plague, whooping cough, and even communism. Now, Teddy later on continues to push Tat Tilly to come to the dance, and he tries to raise some cultural references to try and impress her, including the musical South Pacific, South Pacific, South Pacific that is. That's a tongue twister. At the end of this chapter, Molly ends up tipping Stu on herself on purpose. Teddy runs down to get some ointment from Mr. Almanac, um, but Tilly refuses to use it, worried that he has laced it with something bad, knowing that it's for her. The last chapter in this first section is chapter 9, and it opens up with the Beaumont family. We've got Mona, who is often ignored. She's, quote, and I quote, 
She slunk about the corners of the kitchen, and William is thinking about the family debt. In fact, it says he was thinking about the thick file labelled Windswept Crest, which is where he lives, the homestead where he lives. And we know that he's a little bit worried about what he's going to do about the family's debt. Now, it is the night of the footballer's ball, and Gertrude is very assertive and ends up actually attaining William Beaumont's attention. At the end of the night, they end up becoming quite intimate, and in this way, I guess, um, this is Gertrude's attempt to sort of lock him into their relationship, which is interesting because it is a conservative society, and this is exactly why, or the behavior, that the town looked down upon Tilly and Molly for, which is, again, goes to show that they're quite a contradictory society. Now, Tilly arrives at the hall and feels a sense of guilt. In fact, she says, She knew it was a mistake that it was too soon and too bold. A feverish nausea swamped her, guilt, and she said to herself, It wasn't my fault. Again, we get this idea that something happened in the past. The people in the town look at her outfit, and actually it's called, or it's labelled a striking green gown, I like the word striking because it links in nicely to Abigail Williams, who is labelled as being strikingly beautiful. Again, Tilly says she pressed the guilt down again until it churned in her stomach. She was used to it, used to forgetting and enjoying herself, and then suddenly remembering suddenly feeling unworthy. No one came near the starful forward, that being Teddy, or his partner, that being Tilly, that night. And she was glad because it was easier this way. Mona is also ignored by her mother once again. This is a continual theme throughout the text. And at the end of the chapter, Teddy and Tilly share a really nice moment together when he walks her home. And he suggests that he can look after her. And I quote, I can look after you. Tilly, um, I guess Teddy, it's, it's important because Teddy dismisses what the town thinks of Tilly and makes up her own opinion of her. And in this way, them really very much made for each other. And that's the end of Gingham and chapters 1 through to 9. Join us again next time when we go through the second section of the text, which is called Shantung. And until then, as I said, you can contact me at sixpeacepodcast at gmail.com or check out the YouTube channel. But until then, I've been Jim Session. This has been the Six Piece Podcast reminding you that proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. Are we finished? Done. <laughs> <laughs>